Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. We're recording this on December 8th, 2016, and you're listening to episode 12. Politicos is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and around the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Let's just jump into our first sort of big news of the week, I guess, is Premier Rachel Notley came to town. Alberta's been desperate for a pipeline to get more oil from the oil sands to global markets. And last week, Justin Trudeau announced that the Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan pipeline would be approved. And so I think Rachel Notley really wants to make sure this gets built. Blocking that is a lot of sort of environmental and local opposition, including the mayor of Vancouver, the leader of the opposition here, a lot of First Nations chiefs. I think it was natural that she wanted to come and try to boost the profile of it and make her case. Yes, this has been a major policy plank of Rachel Notley's for a while, is getting a pipeline built. Basically comes with the office of the Premier of Alberta, is a desire to build pipelines. And, uh, so it's no surprise that when Kinder Morgan got approved that she would come out here to try and uh, sell it and uh, tamp down on any opposition that sure to arise. Especially as... Alberta's first NDP premier and the first premier in a long time to get a new pipeline approved by the federal government. It's really on her to sort of push this through. And especially with the sort of opposition she's facing that we'll get into about the carbon tax that she's brought in to try to make sure that this goes through. So I can understand her angle. What was interesting is she made sure it was a very sort of private one-on-one meetings. It wasn't big public rallies She mostly, I think, just met behind closed doors with different politicians and different leaders and did a lot of sort of traditional media interviews. So she spoke to Global News. She spoke to the, you know, local TV stations and radio stations, but she didn't go have a debate. And that's one thing Green Party leader Andrew Weaver actually played up was putting out an open letter challenging her to a debate on just this issue on Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Yeah, I don't think it's any surprise that Premier Notley didn't take up that invitation. And it's a classic case of uh, politicking and playing to your strengths, is that Andrew Weaver had nothing to lose by challenging the Premier to a debate. It was going to be, uh, no matter what, he'd come out looking good. And at the same time, Rachel Notley has nothing to gain by trying to debate an ardent opponent of the pipeline who isn't even a Premier or even the opposition leader. Like we're, we're talking the lead of a third party in BC, and well, I'm sure Andrew Weaver, you know, can rally up some opposition to it. At the same time, it's not where you want to direct your energies if you're trying to sell a pipeline and have a limited amount of time to do so. Yeah, it was very smart on Andrew's part for just getting the press and getting the public attention out of it. You're absolutely right. I think I was thinking about this earlier and Rachel Notley's approach was basically to just come and talk to the people she needed to talk to. Like she doesn't need to win votes here, so she doesn't need to meet and greet voters. It would almost open up more chance for a conflict and sort of throw her off message where she had a very clear purpose to this trip. And I can't say that she, you know, changed anyone's minds, but she didn't do any damage at least. Yeah, that's the what the goal really is for the premier is to convince the local politicians here that 
there isn't as much to gain from opposing uh, the pipeline or that for whatever reason they shouldn't be that vocal to it. And a public rally is not necessarily the best way to go about that if you can't uh, draw out huge crowds to support your position. And, you know, this isn't Fort McMack. You're not going to get crowds of people coming out to cheer on a pipeline. What makes this really interesting, though, is you have the NDP premier sort of allied with the liberal federal government and I guess the BC liberals almost on this issue. And then the BC NDP, who are the same party as the Alberta NDP, but they are on an exact opposite position on this issue. You know, John Horgan's come out against Kinder Morgan expansion. And so there's now this tension and this sort of open question, will the sort of strategists who help Rachel Notley win come to Alberta? It's no secret that Brian Topp was heavily involved in BC's 2013 NDP campaign, and he's now an advisor to Rachel Notley in Alberta. Is he going to come and help in this campaign? Or is the BC NDP going to be hung out to dry? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And I think that kind of shows some of the problems with having the one-party for-all-levels approach, is that when provincial interests or provincial and federal interests don't align, you get in very awkward positions where you get party infighting. The nice thing about the BC Liberals not being the same party as the federal Liberals is when Justin Trudeau approves a pipeline. It's not popular here, for example. There's plenty of space to distance oneself from it without having to worry about the brand dragging you down. Right. The proof of this trip, I guess, is just going to be in what effects it has. And I have trouble seeing anyone's mind really being changed. I'm sure she met with Gregor Robertson, but is he going to decide, oh, well, Rachel made some excellent points. I'm going to now convince my very dogmatic voters that this is good for them. I'm sure she maybe met with Burnaby's mayor and you know, sort of made the same points at even the First Nations groups, but there's sort of this, it's just become such a partisan issue that I have trouble seeing how this is really going to change Yes, and all, all politics is local, and mayoral politics is more local than most. Even if Gregor Robertson, behind the scenes, actually likes pipelines, he's unlikely to go forward with any sort of public endorsement of it. I just don't see Gregor Robertson being an ally on this. Even if he was a hardline, uber-pro-business uh, politician... So the mayors will have their position. It looks like John Horgan has his position. The reports are that, you know, he and um, Ms. Notley did meet and discuss this, but they sort of left the way they came in. John Horgan's got to play to the NDP base, and I think he's seen the danger of the sort of floppy kind of approach that Adrian Dix took in 2013. And so he's very wary of that, and I think... He's just going to sort of double down on his opposition and maybe he's sort of hoping that if he gets in, he'll put up the sort of token barriers and let it pass if that's what he really wants. I'm not saying he will do that, but that's maybe the only way he can get through. Yeah, we we mentioned on the show a couple times how the NDP is in a pretty tough position on this issue in that. There's a split within the party on how to approach these resource development questions. And 
we saw the problems with it last time with the staking out every position possible and basically pissing off everybody as a result. Uh, and after the defeat of Adrian Ditz in the last election, Hordrian has to be uh, conscious of this and trying to avoid it to the best of his ability, but he still has this issue facing him and well, he's trying to give a more consistent message, which is good. It still hasn't resolved that fundamental discontinuity within the party. Well, I think on this specific pipeline project, the you know contrast between jobs and environment isn't as stark in BC, because this is basically a pipeline that's just going to cut through BC, so there will be jobs in building it, but only a few in maintaining it. It's unlike the Northern Gateway, it doesn't create a whole new refinery system at Kitmat. This just sort of goes to where there already are ports. So in the short term, there will be sort of a few jobs to help build it. In the longer term, this is really helping Alberta. And so you can make that argument that helping Alberta helps BC, but that doesn't really help anyone here. And so I can really see how the environmentalists could push their case harder on this one, at least within the NDP. Yes, and since it goes through a much more populated area too, just on the numbers side of it, uh, you're probably going to see more opposition because there's just so many more people directly affected by it now, and it's not just an abstract thing that's happening in the other end of the province. Well, we'll have to see how it plays out. This pipeline's obviously still a long way in the future, even though it's gotten the conditional green light and some extra strings, but... For now, let's switch gears and talk about the next of the ongoing kerfuffling, flopping aroundness that is Canada's electoral reform file with the new consultation that's been launched. When this was first announced several weeks ago, we were actually fairly excited about it and voiced interest in uh, when that was going to be coming out. And... And let's just say that excitement's definitely faded, and now it's been replaced with confusion and possibly a little rage. So the Trudeau Liberals, after receiving the Electoral Reform Committee's reports, plural, announced its new consultation survey that it would put to all Canadians, and it will be sending, I believe, postcards soon to every household to make sure everyone knows about this. And I think everyone already knows about it because it's been so widely mocked. It's basically mydemocracy.ca. You can go on there, and it's a survey that's been created by the people at Vox Pop Labs who did the vote compass for CBC and a few other countries around the world. But it's in very similar style in that the questions are very surface level, as in the liberals' words, just trying to get at the values. And then at the end, it gives you this pop-up of you're a innovator, or you're a conformist, or you're a traditionalist, or as I think they were joking in the House of Commons, you're a level five Pokemon. And beyond that, in the liberals' words, the questions try to both ask the positive frame, the neutral frame, and the negative frame of different angles of different issues to see how that affects it and to make sure you play off the trade-offs of each different system they're looking at. But unfortunately, it kind of ends up playing a lot of negatives and spinning things in a very weird way. Well, in order to actually discuss the trade-offs of the system, it would be nice if they, you know, asked about the systems, because 
this one, those sorts of details or questions were noticeably absent. Uh, about the only actual concrete proposal that got discussed was online voting, which they asked about four times, so they couldn't squeeze the question on STV or MMP in there. Well, I think the idea is they wanted to look at these broad values, but like you're saying, they did hit these specifics. They also talked about um, giving 16 and 17-year-olds the right to vote in one question, but they didn't bring in the sort of negative spin of that. They only said, should the vote be open to younger people? And so I think all of the criticism is really fair and also really funny. The National Post has released a sort of spin on called Democracy Mine, which I definitely recommend people to take. BuzzFeed released its own version of the poll. Yes, I'm a spooky ghost. Well, on, on the Democracy Mine one, I got like I'm a villain because I half trolled the thing because it's like, do you support democracy or do you want to see everything burned yes i'm apparently a uh activist who lights guy fox masks and closing bridges down uh according to the national post yeah there's a lot of really funny stuff and i i have to say i think the national post is by far the funniest and the best of it and uh who says conservatives can't be funny uh but yeah the this was pretty roundly mocked across the board and the uh Hashtag on Twitter rejected uh, ERQs. There's just a field day with that. And Do you think the party with the most seats should have to negotiate with other parties, even if they're the Nazi party? Or do you want a nice, simple ranked ballot? Or do you want to personally solve the Gallagher indebts in the polling booth? So the, the feedback on Twitter and social media was almost universally negative. And even in the more traditional press, there was a lot of pushback on this and... I think rightly so, they mocked what is a pretty shallow survey, in my opinion. Well, and the Liberals' spin on it has sort of shifted over the couple days since it's launched. At first, it was just, these are the broad values questions. Then there were reports that people who were calling the phone number that's on the website were being told these were the questions that the Electoral Reform Committee approved, and the committee did not. The committee actually said, we ran our own survey— we would love it if you put our questions in your national survey, and then the government didn't. And now the government's talking beyond the values. They're talking about the sort of different angles they're taking on the questions. And all along, they've sort of alluded to the bright political scientists they've involved. But it just goes to show you how confused uh, and all over the place their responses have been on this. For anyone who does really want to support proportional representation as the committee recommended i definitely recommend you go to mycanadiandemocracy.ca first where fair vote canada has sort of gone through the major questions and said here's what we think will show our support for proportional representation and it's i think telling they have to go the we think because a lot of these questions are not particularly clear on what they're getting at and I've made my preference for STV uh, clear in the past, and yet when going through this survey, I it was pretty hard to figure out what questions I did actually answer to effectively communicate that. Well, what's nice about this way Fair Vote Canada did it is they reproduced the questions, but then they just struck out every time it said, even if, blah, blah, blah. So, for example, a ballot should be easy to understand, even if it means voters have fewer options to express their preferences. And they say, you know, if you support proportional representation, you should probably try to answer disagree or strongly disagree. 
But they say, this is particularly confusing, this question. It's a misleading question that makes it very difficult to tell the government what you really want. Because it seems like, well, ballots should be easy to understand. Who's against simple? Yes, and this is one of those things that's been brought up time and time again on this. And honestly, just confuses me because even on a lot of proportional systems, the ballots aren't that complicated. Okay, in a multi-winner riding under, say, single transferable vote, the ballot's longer, but it's no more confusing than before. You just, you know, rank the people. Instead of one mark, you just uh, put a bunch of numbers down, which anyone who's been through fourth grade or even below that should be able to manage. And um, there are elections with confusing ballots. There's been some issues in the States with some of the formats they've used. Uh, I believe it's called the butterfly ballot uh, came up in the 2000 Bush v. Gore case. And I mean, that one was actually a confusing design where on opposite pa- folded out opposite pages and it was staggered. Uh, just not a very intuitive system. And the counties that use that had noticeably higher votes for the candidates who would were the minor party candidates, but looked like they were the uh, position where the major party candidates were. So you could, you can have a confusing ballot, but I none of the systems that are being put forward are calling for any of those sorts of confusing ballots. At the most, you add a second choice or a second portion of the ballot, or you get to put multiple choices in order, and neither of those are particularly confusing. Exactly. If what the liberals were really wanting to get at was this sort of question of values, that's what I think they should have done a year ago. Like this survey, I wouldn't be upset at, like it still would be bad, but if they put this out within three months of starting their mandate and say, we want to figure out what Canadians values are about electoral reform and then go from there, that would be sort of a smart and good way to do it. Instead, they told the committee what the values are and then got upset when the committee came back with the wrong answer. Yes, and this is definitely the sort of thing you should have put ahead of this stage of the process. I took the other survey that was put out uh, by the committee, and there's a lot of kind of similar vague-ish questions on there, but that was during the committee deliberation phase. That was when they were still bringing in data, and that's the appropriate time to do it. I mean, I still think it should have been one of the first things they did rather than reasonably late in the committee process. But putting this out after the committee has released their report is just nonsensical from a how to actually manage this process. And now that we have a report, this is the time to be taking that and figuring out what system we want. And if you're going to consult with Canadians, you should be asking about the system and Despite all this talk of values, the value that the House of Commons should reflect the votes of the populace never came up in the survey. Well, that's exactly one of the biggest problems. It sort of looks for the values the liberals want to find, it seems like. It wants to find a simple ballot that supports an accountable majority government, which is a first-past-the-post or at most a ranked ballot system. So it's almost painfully obvious to what stare through this survey and see what they're trying to get at. 
and there's such a good opportunity here. This has been developed with what seems like a fairly internet 2.0, internet 3.0 company that will be doing a lot of things like geolocating all the people. They'll be breaking down all of these demographics and producing what are probably going to be very interactive and shareable graphics after. Too bad they're going to be meaningless because half the people are probably trolling it. No one's really taking it seriously. And it's open to massive abuse because it doesn't track you. Yes, there's no unique ID requirement or anything. And it's not like you can't do it. You're, you're mailing out postcards. You you can have a code on there that you're required to enter. You, you can take this multiple times. I, I saw several uh, journalists talking about how they changed a few answers to see what the end result was going to be. So people are taking it multiple times. I don't know what sort of security they have against bots uh, just going through the process, but it's not infeasible to just screw around with the system. The last survey got approximately 22,000 results. And if you, this one's going to be running for about 25 days, I believe, which basically means if you want to replicate that just with screwing around, you only need about 800 responses a day to double the last survey. Well, I'd heard by two or three days in, they'd already had 150,000 responses. And the government was bragging about this. Are they going to still be bragging if they get 35 million responses? Well, of course, then it's every Canadian. But what if they get 40 million responses? What if they get 50 million? You know, at what point does it become painfully obvious that their system is broken? Or I guess the question now is, so what next? We know the government is trying to find these values. And assuming they care about the committee's recommendation at all. Well, the fact the committee didn't come up with a specific system because they weren't told to leaves it now in the government's hands. And it's sort of up to the Trudeau liberals to decide what system they bring forward. You know, they mocked the Gallagher index, but are they going to sort of look at that? Are they going to look at creating a proportional style system? Are they going to look at putting it to a referendum? We don't know any of these answers yet. It does look like the Liberals have cooled to the issue and are probably trying to kill it, which does make you wonder why they aren't putting it to a referendum if they want to kill it. Because as much as I've supported referendums in the past, there are ways you can sabotage them uh, if you want to. And I mean, my arguments were always predicated on the assumption the government actually wanted to go forward with this. But I mean, there are ways to kill it. And this just confused, flailing about, just seems a kind of odd approach for what's been a fairly politically astute government so far. Well, it's a government that's kept its head down on most issues right now, and it's only now having to make decisions. And that's where I think we're starting to see it piss people off. And so where they go next, I think, is that I guess they'll get not very useful data out of this, but be able to then draw whatever conclusions they want to. And that'll be the most telling thing in January and February is what is the story the liberals start to tell about this data? My guess is it's going to be either a there's no clear consensus, which has been the narrative they're running with so far, or what I think would be a little more ballsy, but they probably won't do is argue it validates their preferred system. But that strikes me somewhat less likely because if they do propose just a ranked ballot, you, they're going to get rebellion from all of the other parties. And even if they could push it through the House, it would 
I think cripple uh, the liberals in the long run because it would be such a natively um, self-serving thing. And what a lot of the other parties see as an existential threat to their uh, future electability. And I think it would just also put a lot of Canadians offside too. So instead of them being everyone's second choice, everyone would be looking for the anyone but Trudeau ballot. Yeah, and not only that, you'd uh, likely see this get challenged in court, and there's a good chance that would get held up beyond 2019, and which case the re-election chances go downhill significantly if you're fighting a campaign on this is a nakedly partisan move to quote-unquote rig the election in our favor. Yeah, even the Fair Elections Act and all of the sort of issues that happened during elections with the Harper government, none of those really came back to bite them. Like They threw up some controversies, robocalls and those kind of things. But it wasn't this like, we're going to entirely change how you vote. Yeah, it was, it was tweaking around the edges. And yeah, there are some of the tweets that may be somewhat self-serving, but, you know, it, at most it shifted a margin here or there. It wasn't such a, we're just going to completely overhaul the whole system to give us an advantage. Uh, so for that reason, I think it's less likely to go forward. But in terms of the political fallout from this, I'd say there's a good chance um, when the next cabinet shuffle comes along, Mario Monsef is not going to get uh, put into another position. Uh, she's being thoroughly unimpressive on this file. And just in general, I think this has probably harmed her long-term uh political viability it's tough to say i mean lots of politicians have been given really terrible files or pushed on really you know difficult decisions but then still rebounded what does this first term politically inexperienced mp have to sell herself going forward you know there's no long history of being the libertarian guy in the party like bernie has Mm. There's just this disappointment, and that's about it. And without something in the past or some other accomplishment or item of note on one's resume, it's hard to stage a political comeback in that way. It'll just come down to who they can find to take the sinking ship of electoral reform in this country, if anyone. And maybe she'll stick with the file just because no one else will take it. Yeah, though now that the problems have really surfaced, and once I think it gets kind of less in the immediate public eye, you know, when there's no committee going about it, it wouldn't necessarily be a hard sell to convince some backbencher they're going to get minister in their title uh, going forward, unless this turns into an absolutely poisonous file. So that's the liberal side. Um, opposition parties, I think, are kind of in an in- in an interesting position. Uh, the Greens and the, and the NDP staked out their position quite well in the supplemental, in the supplemental opinion on the report. And they are both parties with a long history of support in this. And I think there's some ground to be gained to go in that election when you have some disaffected uh, liberal voters. Now, it's I don't think it's going to shift a huge amount of people. But they can pick up some at the margins, and I think if they're really smart, what they'll do in 
the New Year's introduce a private member's bill in Parliament to enact the recommendation of the uh, of the committee and basically force the Liberals' hand on this. And that way the Liberals would actually have to do a yes or no to it. And if they tie it to the recommendations of the committee, they can probably get the Conservative votes on there just to try to embarrass the Liberals. And then it'll be a question of if they can pick off enough backbench Liberal MPs or Liberals who do support electoral reform to maybe get it through. Of course, they can always play around with the order paper and make sure this is a very difficult process and takes you know another two years. So I don't know if it'll play out that way. But it is interesting over the last week to watch the Conservatives really line up as the champions almost of sticking to electoral reform now just because Scott Reid worked through this committee and I think has come around to maybe not being a proportional representation advocate, but he wants to see the government keep its promise. He wants to see the committee's work not be thrown under the bus. Yeah, uh, Scott Reid was actually a pretty good choice on the Conservatives' part for the committee, and um, he has some previous writings on it from before his time as an MP, and has some pro-reform sentiments, and uh, as a result, I think you was a fairly credible pick and is going to be a decent champion going forward uh, to try and hold the Liberals' feet to the fire on this uh, file. And now that the committee's recommended a referendum, the primary hurdle the Conservatives want to get over has been accomplished if they can then force the committee's recommendation to be enacted. Yeah, so it'll be... A tough couple months, and it's still going to be in the limelight for a little while. But let's shift gears and talk about Cash for Access. A person on Twitter who goes with the handle always underscore vote, which is a good philosophy, I guess. They want us to sort of dig into the hypocrisy of conservatives who critique the Trudeau liberals for these sort of Cash for Access uh, schemes and controversies but are sort of ignoring the BC Liberals ones. Chrissy Clark had a lot of hot water in April and May, especially over taking an extra salary essentially from the party for doing fundraising and meeting big donors and these kind of $10,000 plate dinners or whatever they were. And now, right now, that conversation's kind of died down, even though it's undoubtedly still happening. But there is starting to be a little bit of noise around Trudeau, and it's followed his cabinet for most of the last year, and it's just been like a trickle of stories that the Conservatives have actually dug up. Yes, there's definitely an issue here. Part of the reason why I think it's a bigger story at the federal level is not only just the federal politics just get more attention, but you know Trudeau ran on this, you know, sunny ways. We're going to be better than the Conservatives. All of this um, sort of appearance of not wanting to do this sort of cash for access fundraiser and you know Christy Clark hasn't had that record that Trudeau does so you get attention for it just for the reason that uh it's a goes against the narrative that he was publicly putting out there uh it's the same reason why you know in the states whenever you know one of those like hardcore anti-gay republicans gets into some sort of uh, set scandal involving other men, it becomes a much bigger deal than it would otherwise because they have that record of 
vociferously opposing such behavior. With Clark, on the other hand, I mean, it, it's bad, but it's... It's bad ba- in character. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't go against her own previous statements on, or her own, you know, we're going to make this a major par- part of who we are as a party and a government. Well, I also don't think at the national level, it's really harmed Trudeau. They've been a number of, there's been a number of stories, but he's always managed to, and maybe it's just the skill with the social media or bringing up other controversies almost that can be mocked. So the electoral reform story is much bigger than even the latest sort of allegations and stories that are coming out. And so it hasn't really grabbed the public consciousness. Meanwhile, like you're saying, it going against the grain, the BC NDP have had a couple of their own controversies. I think it was about a week or so ago, there was some stories about the BC NDP giving $10,000 plate kind of access to John Horgan. And they're playing within the rules as they exist, and they say they would end these rules. And we've talked before about how you know parties are always going to use the rules as they exist to the maximum of their advantage until... They can potentially change them. Yeah, that's the thing is if the if you stand on principle and don't do these sorts of fundraisers, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. And this is especially true at the provincial level, where it's much more kind of wild west of political fundraising. Uh, you mentioned that ten thousand dollar plate dinner that would put you nearly ten times over the federal donation limit to just do that. So, as you can tell from that, there's a lot less strict rules about it uh, at the provincial level. And BC is not alone in this. Ontario, Alberta, all of these provinces have had issues. Though the Alberta's clamped down on it a bit since the NDP got into uh, power. But it's a common theme in a lot of provinces is this much more lax regime of political fundraising and uh, spending limits, donation limits. And it doesn't get as much attention, but it probably should. And especially in this sort of situation where that brings in a lot of money when you're charging $10,000 a plate. And one of the talking points the Trudeau government's gone with is, you know, is $1,500 really going to buy you all that much? And it's a lot harder to make that point if you're spending $10,000 or more. Especially at a smaller stakes table like uh, provincial politics or even municipal politics, where in BC municipal politics is even less regulated than provincial. And I think the other thing that's going to happen is these stories will resurface closer to the election. I think people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to provincial or local politics. Part of why we wanted to do a podcast on it until they're, you know, until it's the questions before them, until they have to think about who they're going to vote for. So I think this sort of years of these stories will resurface in the next few months as, you know, the NDP looks for their lines of attack as media starts to question them. Yes, I think it's going to be less of an issue at the provincial level, at least in the short term, just because the Liberals have been in power for such a long time. At this point, it's baked into the political calculus in the way that barely a year into power... Uh, federal level government it isn't so much and they're at much more risk of having that slow trickle of negative news uh hurt them in a way that a government that's been in power 15 years 
I mean, at this point, you either like him or you don't. And well, there are some Swain voters, a lot of that sort of reputation uh, is really baked in there and it's going to be hard to change. Uh, there was one point I want to bring up, which is regarding the party payments to the premier. And that's something I have less of an issue with. This is one of those constant debates in Canada is how politicians should be compensated. And I, there's a solid argument to be made that the premier has two jobs. One of them is to be premier and the other is also to work for the Liberal Party, and she is effectively employed by the Liberal Party, and the corollary of not wanting these uh, sorts of payments is that partisan activities are therefore supported by the tax dollars, and her work is being compensated on the taxpayer's dime through her premier salary. And if, you know, a, a party who for whom she works and provides value for, wants to compensate her for that value. I don't have much of a problem with it. It just gets complicated when, as premier, there's that need to fundraise as well. And that's there's never going to be a clean answer to that unless we institute political party financing from the government, which is fairly unpopular for obvious reasons that people don't like politicians and then they don't like the idea of having to be forced to pay for politicians even if it's on a, you know, your vote directs where your money goes. But it's just going to be a tension, I think. And I don't know what the answer is to that. All right, well, to close off today, let's just talk briefly about the continual descent into the dark side that is, I guess, Alberta politics right now. A lot of people have already talked about it, but Rebel Media, which claims to be a journalist outfit, but is obviously just sort of Ezra Levant's wannabe alt-right of Canada staged a political rally and like a lot of people pointed out why is a media company hosting a rally rather than trying to you know do what media's job is but fine it's activist media like the un says and it's supposed to be an anti-carbon tax rally never minding that the alberta government just got a pipeline approved which is what these people wanted they brought out a number of federal and provincial conservative politicians including Chris Alexander, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada right now. And during his speech, the crowd started chanting, lock her up, about Premier Rachel Notley. Chris Alexander was mistakenly considered to be saying it as well. But now videos surfaced, and I guess what he's been described as conducting it. So sort of, you know, moving his hands along with it and smirking or something like that. He later expressed regret and sadness and felt said he felt uncomfortable at the time, which is really just a chicken shit tr attempt to, you know, walk away from what he obviously realized was wrong later. Which is the interesting part, because if there was any of the conservatives you would expect to be leading it, would, the, would a former diplomat be top of your list on that? I, this is somebody who's been a diplomat worked in the diplomatic corps before and like he should know better on this sort of thing and chris alexander was one of those star candidates when he first ran for the conservative party ambassador to afghanistan all sorts of you know a very well respected canadian diplomat who's just 
been a disappointment uh, as a politician, and he he strikes me as one of those people who's earnest but terrible at politics. And that's what I've heard a few other people say. Like, if he wants to go down that dark road, and fuck him if he does, but then why is he backing out? Like, if he's going to play the Trump type and, you know, be in favor of these people yelling terrible things, holding up anti-LGBT signs, holding up anti-immigrant signs at this rally, but then be duplicitous and two-faced and come around to the national media and be like, oh, well, I didn't actually, I just, I just object to the policy. Never mind that I didn't condemn at the t- chance I had when I had the microphone in front of these people to condemn their the points I disagreed with, which suggests he didn't really disagree with them or he's happy to have them there. Yeah, or is more just, I don't know what, to, this is awkward, I don't know what to do, so there's an crowd of energy, I'm just kind of going to go with it. But yeah, that's what strikes me the most about Chris Alexander, is he just has terrible political instincts and uh, just doesn't know how to get out of any situation that's the least bit awkward or uncomfortable, and I think this really showed it. Now, this is the sort of thing which shouldn't be that hard, and I, this is just, like, outright insane thing to be chanting. I mean, it was bad enough when it was in the U.S. presidential election, but, you know, there's actually an FBI investigation going on there, so there was, you know, a hint of something illegal, but at here, I mean, what would you lock up Rachel Notley for? The... There isn't even a suggestion that a crime is being committed. I have to give full credit to Brian Jean and I believe Jason Kenney as well for actually speaking out against this when they had the chance and calling it, you know, completely inappropriate was Brian Jean's words, Wild Rose leader. If there was anyone who was going to sort of embrace this wing of his party, it would be the leader of that party. He's also had a sort of troubled relationship with his party because his party is full of this kind of fringe angry, disaffected people who bring in all of this hatred, and he's trying to figure out how to spin it into something more positive, I guess, or at least more constructive. But this is the same kind of hatred that drove Sandra Jansen out of the Progressive Conservative Party and into the NDP. It drove her out of the leadership race and into, you know, the other party. So it's hard to know where it goes from here. And I know a lot of people have talked about oh, well, we need to listen to their concerns. But I still kind of personally reject that as bullshit. Like, these people obviously have issues, but they're not coming there in a point of, oh, I want to have an honest discussion about the merits of a carbon tax. They're coming there to denounce the Alberta government's attempt to bring some equality into schools. They're going there to denounce refugee resettlement programs they're going there because some of them have lost jobs that's the concern we can talk about but you're not going to solve that but if you're going to bring in all of this hatred i'm not going to take you seriously there's definitely a role for addressing those concerns and having a conversation uh those probably aren't the voters you want to talk to on it in the past month since the U.S. election, that's been kind of an ongoing debate, is engagement versus shunning. And there's a there's definitely a role for engagement. I, I do disagree with the 
you know, just shun them all approach. Because I think it misunderstands fundamentally how politics works. And politics is about the margin. It's always targeting the marginal voter. For the same reason the NDP doesn't pitch to, uh, you know, the hardcore libertarian crowd is because they're never going to get those voters. It's just not going to happen. But there, you know, are some people who are kind of on the edge who they may lean one way, but, you know, if you make a good case and, you know, legitimately address their concerns, you can bring them over to your side. And the immediately jumping to shunning people definitely, I think, hurts that long-run approach. And you end up writing off those the marginal voter as well. I think the one thing we're missing in this as well is how much we haven't blamed Ezra Levant for being a terrible human being. Because there are a lot of people, I'm sure, at that rally who we could have rational conversations about carbon taxes and fears and those kind of jobs issues. But when you sort of bring it together in this hate-fueled rally, it just becomes a powder keg of anger that you're not going to get a productive political conversation out of. You're going to get this kind of inevitable, angry, tirading chant to, that doesn't even make political sense. It's just literally copying the anger they saw in the U.S. And I think this is one of the worst parts of Canadian politics is the urge to ape whatever's happening down south of the border. We've already seen a few people trying to ride the Trump wave up here, not particularly convincingly because they're trying to just follow the broad strokes of it without understanding why or having the authenticity Trump had. He's a very inauthentic person, but he was authentically not a politician and authentically didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But, you know, here, does anyone think, you know, Chris Alexander actually thinks people should be locked up for proposing uh, stuff they disagree with or... You know, that Kelly Leach hadn't suddenly found these positions in the last uh, year. This is one of those areas where people see what's happening down in the States and go, oh, that's a way to get some political momentum going on. But it rarely works because it's not the sort of thing that you can just transpose. Uh, as we said earlier, all politics is local and the politics that works against Hillary Clinton isn't going to be the politics that's going to get... Rachel Notley defeated in the next election, or uh, Justin Trudeau, for that matter. For sure. And the flip side of that is the second worst part of Canadian politics is the knee-jerk, if the states does it, it's also bad approach. Uh, one of my pet peeves is how we as a nation can't have a reasonable conversation on healthcare because we only ever compare it to one data point, which is the tire fire that is the U.S. healthcare system. And if anyone ever brings up, you know, Europe, it suddenly just gets ignored and redirected to the dismal system in the States. And we're in this weird position where there's two common trends, both playing off the U.S. and neither lead into a productive discussion or productive politics. Well, maybe as the U.S. descends into utter chaos, we can start to actually look at other countries. Maybe not Britain, because it's also going a bad direction, but... Yeah, I don't know about and, that. And maybe not France either, but there's got to be another country out there that knows what it's doing. Yeah, on the other hand, at least that second part just tends to get worse. 
the more Canadians are offside with the U.S. The last eight years have been too bad, but, you know, pre-2008, during the Bush years, it was noticeable. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicoast.ca. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at politicoastpod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.